maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're jumping back to an event in which Intelligence Squared, in collaboration with the Elders Organization, welcomed former US President Jimmy Carter, Mary Robinson, the first female president of Ireland and former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the South African religious leader and activist, to discuss the state of the world back in 2012. It's a discussion touching on many topics that still feel timely today, including how best to prevent global conflict, the challenge of the climate emergency, and the role of religion in the world too. Our host for the evening is the broadcaster John Snow, who was joined for a brief introductory discussion about the formation of the Elders Organization with Virgin Group entrepreneur Sir Richard Branson and the musician Peter Gabriel. This is part one of the discussion and part two will be available in the following episode. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations, head to intelligencesquared.com membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple. Now, here's Jon Snow with more. Well, we're not going to occupy these chairs because three of them will be occupied by 
very special people, who've been brought together actually originally by these two men. And Peter, how did it begin? Was it your idea or his idea? Well, I, I came to Richard with a proposal and it sort of evolved uh, from, from there. And, uh, what was the proposal? Well, I think there was a, a dream that uh, trust in institutions um, was failing in all sorts of areas and yet there were still individuals uh, who through extraordinary lives had the trust and faith of a lot of the people of the world and uh, that perhaps there was some way of, of uh, getting some sort of organization which might put together some of the wisdom and experience and be able to influence things. Um, and the linchpin yeah. was to be... Um, well, I, I, I felt that, um, uh, that, uh, that having a group of people that could uh, deal with conflict resolution issues, um, who, who had uh, high moral authority, um, uh, would have a chance of resolving, resolving these issues. Um, we have organizations like Sandhurst and you know, a lot of military organizations um, but there, there are very few, few organizations that are out there trying to deal with peace and reconciliation. So you obviously have to get... I mean, I don't know how many world leaders you know. You probably know loads because you fly all over the place and have to get permission. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. but, but, I mean, it's one thing to have an idea. It's quite another to try and persuade people of presumably large ego and large previous power to get on and join. Well, we both agreed that we had to get Mandela because if, if the idea was that people without political, military, or economic power, but just moral authority, uh, he was the number one target. So I think our discussions began in 99, and, and we actually got to sit down with Mandela in 2001, and it, it then took a few more years. He, he was initially not very convinced. Uh, he said, I'm not sure that the world wants a bunch of old-timers getting in the way. But then he remembered when he was negotiating with Hutus and Tutsis and the young generals involved said, we want to negotiate only with you because everyone else seems to have an agenda. Uh, you only seem to want the, the best outcome for all of us. And at, at that point, we started to get hopeful. And, uh, you know, Richard is, is brilliant at moving those things along. Um, and, and gradually, I think, he became convinced. So you, you had Mandela as a yes, but there are ten of them, so, and, and you've got to get ten people who fancied working together. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, uh, it, it was incredible sort of sitting down with Mandela and Grasha Michel, and obviously it was extremely important that the elders were chosen, um, uh, chosen by them. Um, previous to that, um, uh, President Carter, uh, Desmond Tutu and others had come to Necker Island. There had been a lot of people in this room uh, who'd met on Necker Island um, to brain, brainstorm about um, uh, you know, what kind of elders there should be, um, you know, how one could get a, a, a gender balance, uh, a, a global balance. Um, and so by the time um, Mandela and Grasha Michel, Michel sat down to try to choose you know, who were the you know, 12 um, most respected people in the world, um, Anyway, a lot of groundwork had gone in. But, but rather was... gloriously, one of them was Aung San Suu Kyi, and she's now had to um, recluse herself because she's now in power. I mean, she's elected. So what would you say was the greatest thing these elders have achieved? Would, would you say the independence of South Sudan? Um, I think that there's a, there's a lot of things that have been achieved, um, sometimes as individual elders, sometimes as elders. Um, you know, you had Kenya falling apart. Um, you had... Um, uh, Archbishop Tutu um, 
Grasha Michelle and, and uh, Kofi Annan playing a, a big role in, in making sure that uh, a coalition government got formed. Uh, and anyway, you'll, you'll be talking to them, but there's been an, an awful lot of things they've been doing. Uh, well, I'd just say looking forward, I think there's extraordinary opportunities. And the first time that uh, with technology and communications revolution, you know, you're just beginning to see in the Middle East the impact of, of uh, digital phones uh, un- universally spread around. And in a sense, you can imagine a world where anything bad that happens is mapped you know, organizations like Oshahidi doing that with uh, storytelling so you can zoom in and hear in hmm. people's voices with big global campaigns built up, people like Avaz doing that, and then uh, high-level interventions. And this is where the elders could play. So, you know, I'm passionate that the possibilities of the technological revolution, when allied to this, uh, could achieve... A lot more, and it may be just incremental. But if they just stop one war, then that would be uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. Well, look, uh, I know that they wouldn't even be here without you and a group of people who actually fund them, because they've, exactly. got, to, they've got to move from A to B and B and B and B and A and all the rest of it. Uh, so thank you very much for that, um, folks. And to all those folks, folks a big hand for Richard Branson and Peter Gabriel. Thank you very much. So let's hear now from the elders themselves, President Carter, Archbishop Tutu, and former President Mary Robinson, all three coming on. So we've heard how it, how it began, but, you know, it's all very well sort of lining up some incredibly, you know, experienced people, but you've all got, in the nicest possible way, big egos. Um, and uh, and um, uh, you've got to work together. And, uh, you know, um, Archbishop, former president, former president, how, how, how do you work together? These are fantastic people, actually, uh, that you have former heads of state uh, dancing attendance and listening to a mere archbishop. I mean, that's fantastic. They're the most unknown (laughs) archbishop in in the world. No, no, but I mean, they really are uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, Yeah, the alchemy has been good, Mm. uh, you know, but we, we had to learn to fit, uh, to, you know, know, know that I'm very strict about time. Ah, that's good to know. Yeah. People say you go on a bit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, I, is, I thought is, you were going to be nice to me. <laughs> He's also quite bossy, I have to say. Quite bossy. <laughs> In fact, he enjoys bossing people. Come, comes with the cloth. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think it's true that when we, when we started, we were more aware of what we had done and, you know, what we hoped to do as individuals. And then I think very quickly and um, with a lot of help and guidance from our chair, uh, we began to see that as elders together, 
yeah. we could do so much more. And I think it helps. I mean, I, I, I think it helps that we have a moment of silence at the beginning of each of our meetings. So we're not a think tank in the, in the traditional sense. A secular sense. moment. Um, it can be a secular or a spiritual moment. It's obviously a spiritual moment when it ends with Arch. You know, he always ends it um, in prayer. But the moment can be shared as, as, as a moment. But it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's for, even on teleconferences, we go silent which I think you shouldn't do on a teleconference, but we do at the beginning of it. <laughs> How often does somebody say they don't want to see you? Oh, um, um, uh, politicians, uh, political leaders. Yeah. Uh, who's, who's turned you down? Uh, ha- ha- hardly ever. Really? Imagine, imagine uh, uh, Jimmy Carter picking up the phone and saying to a head of state, uh, we would like to meet you. No. No. <laughs> Hardly ever. I mean, I think, uh, and, and people are beginning to be aware that we, we, we are not into twisting arms. Mm. I might obviously promise uh, them heaven. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins, interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents that's right three months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, if if they don't op- cooperate, then of course they will go to the warmer place. place. Yes. 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 <laughs> uh, President Carter, it, it, it would be good just to look at, at an example of, of where you have worked as elders, and, and I think Sudan is a. I mean, after all, you you came of age as elders. Uh, at the time of the beginning of Darfur. Yes. Um, could you just... You've just been in Sudan. You've even been talking to President Bashir. 
who is somebody to whom neither we, the Brits, nor the Americans will speak to because there's an arrest warrant out for him. Well, our first trip to Sudan with a fairly large group of elders was to Darfur. We went into the desert area. We met with the people who were there who were suffering. We also met with President Bashir and with those involved in causing the suffering. And since then, we've seen uh, votes in southern Sudan and a formation of the newest nation on earth. But still, there's a very serious threat of war. It's probably one of the most serious threats of international war there is in the world now between South Sudan, a, a nation, and, and North Sudan. So uh, when I, when uh, Lakhdar Brahimi and I finished uh, witnessing the first presidential election in Egypt, we went to Sudan and we met with al-Bashir. And I was asked also to go by my own country's government who refuses to meet with al-Bashir because he's been indicted by the International Criminal Court. And so we, we, following that, I called President Sabakir in the South to tell him that I wasn't discriminating against him. And now, immediately after this meeting, a group of elders are going to go to the southern part of Sudan to meet with President Sabakir, and I will probably call al-Bashir to say we're not ignoring you because we couldn't go to both places at once. So we're trying to prevent a war from taking place there and still working with the United Nations, with the United States, and, and with the African Union and the Arab League to try to keep a war coming. What, what do you think you were able to, to extract from President Bashir in terms of an understanding that there wouldn't be? Well, war? one of the key places in, in Sudan is Abyei. Abyei is a tiny part of, of a, right on the border that's this in dispute. Oil. That's Central. where a major part of the oil is. So I gave uh, President Bashir two or three requests. Uh, I think there were five or six, as a matter of fact. And, and one of my requests was that he withdraw his troops from Abyei, which the South Sudan had already done. And while uh, Lakhdar Brahimi and I were sitting there, he said, I will do that. And he did. So that's just one tiny step toward a possibility of peace, but I don't think that if it had not been for the elders... So there's a demilitarized zone which wouldn't exist were it not for your intervention? Well, I wouldn't give it... Uh, because a lot of people are working on it, but, sure. but, but the point is we requested that and he agreed and, and we were able to announce it to the press immediately afterwards. But which, you, which, which I to be modest. <laughs> which, I, which I don't always do. And, uh, <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. we're going to come back to Africa because there's a lot to talk about, not least the appalling bloodshed between uh, Islamists and Christians, which is occurring in both Kenya and yes. more particularly in Nigeria. But we'll come back to that later. Uh, I wanted to move to a different part of the world because we're right on the heels of a presidential election in Mexico. Yes. And one of the distinguishing factors about this particular election is that the man who's won it is absolutely implacably opposed to the war on drugs. Uh, and he's not alone. Um, where are we with drugs and the elders? I mean, where, where, do you have a collective view on... <laughs> no. I'll rephrase that. I'll, <laughs> I'll rephrase that. Um, do, you, do you have a view on the decriminalisation of drugs? We haven't um, addressed it collectively as elders, but one of our group, um, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, the former president of Brazil, has been leading um, a very important initiative on this issue in Latin America, but actually globally. And I, I was with him in Rio 
And apart from the issues of sustainability we were talking about, you know, young people were coming up and meeting him. And he's a hero in that whole region because of the work he's been doing in that area. And it has been discussed informally. We haven't taken a position on it, but I know that President Carter took a very early position on that issue. Well, we've all been trying to help President Cardoso explain the issues involved in the decriminalization of marijuana, for instance. And uh, it just happens that when I was president of the United States a little more than 30 years ago, I called for the decriminalization of marijuana. Uh, not, not the legalization. That must have won you a lot more friends than well, you had to begin with. As a matter of fact, it was not an unpopular issue because then we were talking about treatment of drug addicts and doing away with the drugs on the consumer end. But, but since then, there's been a massive move toward concentrating almost exclusively on doing away with the suppliers, with helicopters, with bombs, with, with uh, military action and so forth. And I think what President Cardoso says, with which I agree, is that we need to stop putting young people in prison that have a small amount of marijuana and let them be treated if they're addicts and, and concentrate on the treatment and the consumers instead of just concentrating on people in the South Hemisphere who produce uh, drugs, particularly marijuana. But, and I think that uh, this issue in Mexico has been emphasized by the, by the incumbent president now, who said massive numbers of troops into Mexico, which has caused, I think, so far um, over 12,000 deaths. Of the three of you, you are the one that lives in the south. What's your perspective looking north at the consumer, although you have consumers in South Africa too, as you've already illustrated? I'm thinking of the contrast between uh, people who get locked up for uh, perhaps peddling a bit of marijuana Mm. or uh, being caught with it in their possession, and a banker that's been... um, well, named for um, uh, lying or deceit or whatever else that they get up to. They don't go to jail, but the, but the criminalization yes. of drugs ensures that some of the most vulnerable people end up in the neck. Yes, I, I think we, ours is a thoroughly unequal world. And it, it, it seems so obvious that... Uh, instability is going to be a consequence of that. I mean, this is a particular example, but I mean, you can show it in so many different areas. I mean, when you, when you, you get a, uh, Occupy Wall Street um, and, and all of the demonstrations that we've had in developed countries, people are saying this is unconscionable. Uh, and, and it is something that is not sustainable. Hmm. I mean, that we are going to have to begin looking at trying to make our societies a great deal more egalitarian. One of the things that we, we were discussing this particular issue when one of us, uh, uh, Matia former president of uh, Finland, said one of the reasons why you've had less turmoil in, in the Nordic countries is that they are actually, a, or they've always been a great deal more egalitarian. Uh, that you walk in the streets and you don't see poor people. Uh, President Qatar had a, a crack drip uh, and, 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 and it got a little painful even for him. And he went to the hospital. Uh, after the treatment, he, he, he was producing his uh, card, and they said, not in Norway, 
Hmm. You know, uh, and for nothing. Now, amid the absence of Ms. Brintland, mm. I decided to wear green socks, not not in honour of Ireland <laughs> uh, and a green tie, in honour of Rio Plus Twenty, mm. which you were present at. <laughs> and now, the, the interesting thing uh, I'd like to suggest to you is that the media and even the political classes seem to have lost faith with the Rio process, with Kyoto, mm. with. Mm. The whole thing, I mean, I, I again was at Copenhagen mm. when that conference collapsed yeah. and mm. it, it detonated mm. the media's interest. Yeah. They absolutely mm. said, well, that's it. Mm. We got this far mm. and it all fell apart. Yeah. What was the feeling in Rio? What happened was, I think, a sort of fear of a repeat of Copenhagen for exactly the reason you said. So the Brazilians put a great deal of pressure on to have a weak agreement and to have it before the heads of state and government came and even before many of the ministers came. So you had had a, a weak agreement wrapped up with um, some commitment, importantly, to sustainable development goals and a commitment to a high-level political forum, um, you know, a process for that, but without being clear. But it uh, went backwards on things like reproductive rights, backwards on Cairo, the Cairo conference and the Beijing conference, and it was full of you know, aspirational language, but not really commitments. But what happened was... Um, all the, uh, those who had come with hopes that um, there would be a kind of sense of a generational moment in Rio, like Rio, plus 20, Rio 20 years ago, that there would be a change of direction which the world needs on sustainable development. And they were so uh, outraged at this weak agreement before the leaders came, and the leaders didn't reopen it, they just made speeches, they did nothing, um, that there was a sort of energy of saying, we can't leave it to these political leaders. They don't seem to get it. And from indigenous to NGOs to business to philanthropy to um, the, the many, many um, uh, public-private partnerships and broad um, partnerships that were being forged, there was a sort of sense that maybe we need a coalition of the willing to change the whole debate on energy, on climate, and on the future of the world the future of the earth itself. And that very broad consensus kind of energised people. So even though they were furious with the political leaders, they weren't, dis they weren't sort of down and without energy. They were sort of more energised. And I think that that is the mood that has come out of Rio. Could I then pick up then on the role of religion? And it seems to me that we're living in an age of political religion and also of religious religion. And that in Nigeria, you could say that there's been a collision between political religion and, and uh, observance. And I heard on the BBC radio they had a, a transmission from a Nigerian church and the pastor admitted that his, he, this was in the town of Jos, which is right in the, yeah. at the border between uh, Muslim mm. and Christian, and he said, yes, my congregation is scanty. And that was because they fear bombs. Yes, Where I, are you with, with what's happening in Africa? Yes, I, I mean, one, one is obviously very deeply distressed. But remember, I mean, you know, that it isn't, it isn't these different religions. No. You know, it's not the different faiths. That's why I made a distinction between political yeah. religion, yeah. which I would describe as very present, very present in the United States. We saw them roar in tooth and claw outside the Supreme Court trying to overturn uh, Obama's health care bill, and we see political Islam uh, trying to kill off yeah. Christian uh, religion in, in Nigeria. Yeah, but I mean, not too far away. I mean, Ireland, 
Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was people who claimed to belong to the same faith using, mm-hmm. using that as a reason for clobbering others. And, and I mean, we Christians particularly ought to be a great deal more modest. But again, that was political religion, no, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I mean, what you want to say is don't because certain Muslims behave in a particular way then say, therefore, Islam is. Oh, no, because in Joss, for example, they visited the local mosque and talked to the mullah who was yeah. absolutely horrified at what was going on yeah. but had no power to influence it. Yes, I mean, I hope... We, we had, we, Kofi, just before he, he stepped down, uh, called a group um, of about 30 people, uh, and it was called the Alliance of Civilizations, with people of different faiths and from different countries and, and gender. Uh, and amazingly, this disparate group produced a unanimous report. Uh, and Summing it up, Kofi said, it isn't the faiths that are the problem. It is the faithful. <laughs> and faithful. I mean, we've had apartheid not enforced on us by pagans, but Christians. You know, and, and we've... We've, we've got to realize that, I mean, when people are on a kind of binge, they are going to use anything to try to justify. And well, I mean, what could you, as an elder, do in Nigeria? Could you go to a place like Joss and say, what? You, well, I mean, they'd come and kill you. Uh, well, I, I mean, we've been to places uh, like that, I mean, and, and tried to say to people, uh, you know, peace is better than war. Uh, it is much better for you if you cooperate rather than clobber each other. We did it in, in Northern Ireland uh, as well. I mean, and uh, yeah. You, I, I often say I'm so glad I'm not God. <laughs> Because, I mean, just imagine what God must feel like. I mean, we, we, each one of them says, I'm doing God's work. Mm. And, and, and they go off on a binge to clobber others in the name of religion. And you've got to try to persuade them that it's not going to work that way. I've just remembered that it's your 67th wedding anniversary. 57. Do you think God's forgiven no, you being away? 50. 57th. 57. <laughs> 57. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and your wife, Leah, is somewhere on the road between Soweto and, uh, and, and somewhere. That's the, that's the best way of celebrating a, a, a wedding anniversary. What, to be three and a half thousand miles? No, it's no. awful. <laughs> yes, I'm, 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 I'm sorry not to be with her, but she, she was very generous. And, and we're only four days away from your 61st? 66. 66th wedding anniversary. <laughs>
Um, well, I, I don't know that you have any comment on political religion in, in America um, and, and whether there's any affinity with political religion anywhere else. But, I mean, what's so interesting is that you were probably one of the most religious presidents there's been and one of the most devout, uh, and yet uh, nobody could say that you were in remotely a political religionist. Well, that's true. I, I have always believed, as my father taught me, to separate church and state. But I saw it meld together during the subsequent administrations. And now it plays a major role in, in almost every debate in America. You see the particular religions injected into it. And to go back just one step and very briefly, you know, the first of the elders' uh, concern was how the major religions, including Christianity and Islam, are the origin of the persecution or, or, or derogation of women's rights. Hmm. Uh, the Catholic Church won't let a woman be a priest. And the Southern Baptist Convention, from which I withdrew, uh, won't let a woman even teach boys in the seminaries, nor serve as a deacon or, or pastor and so forth. And the Islamic faith, as you know, also in some countries discriminates against women in that in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, a, a woman can't drive an automobile. And I think when, when the rest of the world, maybe in a, a potentially abusive husband, sees that the church ordains this inferiority of women, that justifies abuse of women. So I think, generically speaking, the great religions can do more than anything else if they would correct their ways to let women be completely equal in the eyes of God. And then, they, therefore, and subsequently, they can be equal in the eyes of men. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. The episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. Part two of the discussion with the elders will follow in the next episode of Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.